I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles now and to turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. As we begin to consider together a story that may be unfamiliar to you, I don't know, but a story with relevance that I'm guessing you, like me, haven't fully tapped into yet. This morning we reach in Acts the story of one of the most important moments in the life of Jesus. Uh, It's a moment that's known as the ascension. So when you hear the word ascension, think, yes, going up. That actually happens in the story. But more than that, think of rising to a throne. This is the story of the time when Jesus, a, a moment in history, when Jesus, in a body, returned from death to life, was taken from this world. He saw what we saw. What we see, he, he, he breathed the air that we breathe. He walked where, where we have walked. And taken f- from this world into, into heaven, not the sky. But the realm from which the God who made all that is rules over all that is. When Jesus moved from this realm to that one to take his seat on the throne prepared for him. That's the moment in Jesus' life that we'll consider together this morning. Recently, I heard another pastor preaching a a really helpful sermon on on this moment in Jesus' life. I meant the fact that, you know, a lot of the big moments in Jesus' life come with major holidays and a a nice and robust selection of holiday greeting cards. Um, You know, we just celebrated a global phenomenon that's at least loosely connected, at least at some level loosely connected to the birth of Jesus when we celebrated Christmas. In a couple months, Christians all over the world are going to celebrate, or commemorate rather, the death of Jesus for sinners on a day that we refer to as Good Friday. A few days after that, Christians all over the world will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as we do each week, but in a special way, in solidarity with one another on the day that we call Easter. There's no greeting card for the ascension, though. That moment doesn't come with nearly so much attention. And that has cost us. And our appreciation and our experience of the relevance of all that Jesus accomplished. If you're not a Christian this morning and are here to learn more about what Christians believe or to understand better what it means to follow Jesus, then one thing I want you to know is that nothing Christian believes and nothing the the gospel offers you is any good apart from the ascension of Jesus that we'll consider this morning. It's useless. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, I wonder, could you explain why? Could you explain why this event in the life of Jesus is so important to everything we believe and all that we hope for? One reason I wanted to spend an entire week on this story is that I couldn't explain why, to my satisfaction, this event was so important. And I assume that others of you would be where I have been. Another reason I wanted to take a whole week just on this one story is that this story is uniquely important to Luke, the man who wrote Acts and who also wrote a gospel about Jesus' life and teachings and the things that he did. In fact, Luke is the only writer in the New Testament to tell us the story of the ascension that we'll consider this morning. He ends his gospel with it, very end of Luke's gospel. It ends with Jesus rising, his disciples watching it. And then when he writes his volume number two, Acts, that we're looking at together right now, he begins where he left off in Luke. He tells the same story again. 
So I think it honors his priorities to spend some time thinking today about why this story, so clearly significant to him, is so important for us to understand. But I do want to give you a fair warning this morning. Um, The sermon that you're going to hear this morning is a little bit different from the sorts of sermons that we typically preach. I pray and have worked hard to make sure that this sermon is going to be true to the text. We're going to read together a section from Acts, and my responsibility is to help all of us understand why Luke wrote what he wrote and what it means. I'm going to do my best to do that. But, I, but, but where most of our sermons in series like this one stick strictly to the text that we're looking at and try to pick it apart bit by bit and go into it in great detail... What I want to do today is a little bit different. What I want to do today is, is yes, stay true to the text. Yes, focus where it is focused. But also draw from other places in the Scriptures that shine light on what's happening here so we don't miss it. So this story, really uniquely important to Luke. He's the one who tells it to us, and he does so twice. But Luke doesn't do a lot of theologizing on the story. He doesn't give us a lot of detail about why it's so important and how it intersects with the other things he's going to tell us, much less with what other authors in the New Testament tell us about Jesus and all that he offers. I want to bring in some of that wider context into the story itself. because I think it honors the importance of this event. I think it will serve our conviction and clarity about the gospel. And I think it will actually set us up to understand more what Luke is going to tell us in the weeks to come throughout this series. I heard one pastor describe the ascension of Jesus that Luke tells about here as the kind of detonator for a bomb that is all the benefits of the gospel. If you think about what Jesus accomplished on earth, what he offers to us as this glorious bomb. Bomb's got maybe a negative connotation for you. Sorry about that. Maybe it won't work as well as as it did for me. But if you think about this, it's this explosive power accomplished by Jesus, like filled in here. Think of the ascension as the detonator, apart from which it stays where it is, apart from which it doesn't spread its relevance around the world. Another, pa- uh, another pastor talked about this teaching, about the ascension, as the master key that opens all the locks of the New Testament. If you, think of, if you think of the benefits of the gospel, the things that Jesus accomplished, the things we hope in and proclaim as different as, as rooms of goodness, think about the ascension of Jesus as the key that opens each one, each one. I've become more and more convinced that that's exactly right. And what I want to do this morning is just try to show you a little bit of why. What I want to do this morning is to meditate on the story and what it means. And what I want to do to organize it is just to help you see, to reflect for your encouragement and for your joy on the rooms of gospel life and power that are opened by this key. Or maybe think about it like this. What are the blessings that flow to us through the reality of Jesus' ascension? What are the blessings that flow to us through the reality of Jesus' ascension to heaven? That's the question I want to answer this morning, and I'm going to give you four answers. So if you're following along and you want to take notes, you've got a little page in the worship guide that should help you to do that. Right at the top of it, what are the blessings that flow to us through the ascension of Jesus to heaven? And I'm going to give you four answers to that question. I want to begin by reading the story And then we'll unpack it together. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 and read through verse 14. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. 
And when he had said these things, Luke writes here of Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come to you in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they'd entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is God's word. You can be seated. What blessings flow to us through the reality of Jesus' ascension, the first that I want to reflect on with you this morning, and the first one that I believe Luke's story and how he tells it draws our attention to is the comfort of his presence. The comfort of Jesus' presence. Now, I get the irony. It's not lost on me. Because Jesus left earth, we now enjoy his presence. I get that that's counterintuitive. And, and, and most certainly, it was lost at first on the disciples. But it's true. And it's a wonderful comfort when we begin to understand it. The main focus in this section of the story, besides the sheer fact that Jesus was lifted up out of the disciples' sight as they watched. The main focus of the story besides that fact is the shift that the disciples needed from focusing on what they just lost to celebrating what they just gained. Now, I can't, I can't blame these disciples for initially focusing on the loss of Jesus. You shouldn't either. Jesus' departure must have looked like to them another unexpected blow. I mean, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry... The way his coming was described was as a fulfillment of the promise that God would be with his people. God's presence among his people was how Jesus made sense. The promise of Emmanuel that echoed down from the prophets and that is reintroduced at the story of Jesus' birth. His name will be called God with us. And they'd seen how powerful it is to have God with you as they walked and talked and watched Jesus. They'd come to believe that God is with us in a new and powerful way. Surely the growing confidence they had about God being with them in the person of Jesus is what added to the shock they had when they saw him killed. And now they're alone again, fearing for their lives, huddled in a locked room. And then from all those crushed hopes watching him killed, all of a sudden, unimaginably, they see him risen. He's with them again, only now he's invincible. He's got a body they can recognize, but it, and it's one that can eat food, but it's one that can pass through walls too. Something new is happening here. He's with us and nothing can take him now. It's surely what they would have thought. It's easy to imagine them being confident. We'll never lose him again, especially when you consider that that's basically what Jesus said to them in some of his last words on earth. 
Matthew's gospel, which doesn't include the ascension, but includes a scene a lot like this one, near the end of Jesus' life and ministry, giving a commission to his people, telling them what they're supposed to go and do, ends with the promise. The whole gospel ends with the promise that I, from Jesus' words, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Imagine the comfort of hearing those words spoken by a resurrected body who's now become the focus, the center point of all your hopes. And then, as he's speaking, he's lifted up, swallowed by a cloud, and then gone. You can forgive them, can't you, for gazing into heaven? That's what I would have been doing. And it's truly thinking, no, not again. Now what do we do? We can't live without him. Where's he gone? Everything I read for context on this passage sees in the question that the angels ask the disciples at least a mild and gentle rebuke. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Translation, you shouldn't be. Don't look for him there. Don't focus on what was as sweet as those days with him had been. And we're thinking, surely they're thinking, well, why not? (laughs) Where else are we supposed to look? That's a huge ask. And built into their redirection of the disciples from what they just lost, eventually to, to what they have now gained, built into that redirection and explained all over the New Testament is a promise that his ascension to the throne of heaven is not us losing access to him, but us gaining a greater access to him than we could have ever had otherwise. How good it was for them to have him nearby. In a storm, they knew his protection. He speaks and the seas are calmed. In a food desert, he takes a snack and multiplies it into a meal for thousands. This man provides how good it is to have him nearby. In their confusion which so much of the Gospels testifies to. His words brought them clarity. How good it is to have a friend who knows more than you do, who can lead you and guide you and enlighten you. How good it is to have him nearby. Having him nearby, that's where we get protection, they thought. Companionship, enlightenment, and grace upon grace upon grace as he sees the worst in them and loves them anyway. How good to have him nearby. And in the ascension, what the New Testament tells us is that we have not lost all those precious benefits that they tasted when he was touchable. But we have received the infinite expansion of those benefits. See, the Jesus that they knew, lived with, walked with, talked to, The Jesus they had known as a human person, as human as any one of them, could only be in one place at one time. Willingly, he took on the limits that we live with inside of space, inside of time. So long as he was what he was, as they had known him, he couldn't be in Jerusalem with Peter as he preached and in Samaria with Philip as he bore witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. 
He couldn't be much less with his followers in Africa and in Russia, Indonesia and British Columbia, always into the end of the age. But when Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't just move up from one place to another. He's not living in the sky now instead of on earth. That's not the way the Bible sees heaven. He moved from one dimension to another, for lack of a better word. One of the best analogies I've, I've heard for this, someone described this, the heaven as, as a realm different from earth, as something like the writer or director of a play or a movie. If you want to look for the writer, you won't find them backstage. They're not in a green room. They're not on the next page of the script. The writer lives relative to its play, to its world that, that, that he or she has created in a totally different dimension. Still there, still touching all of it, still seeing it all, still influential in all parts of it, but not contained with it, existing on another plane altogether from it. And that, that type of place is where, is where God has always been, on the throne of the universe. Not a place like we know places, another dimension, another realm altogether. Not visible, not touchable, but oh, so present. Oh, so active. He's everywhere, all at once. And in losing Jesus that day, what they gained was the infinite expansion of everything they loved about having him nearby. Now offered not just to them, but to everyone who ever trusts in Jesus, no matter where they live or when. He is with you always, even to the end of the age. Because of his ascension, this is what Jesus offers to us now. No, it's not a tangible body that we can hug on a whim. But it is a presence that can minister to all of us anywhere we might go, whatever we might face. His ascension is how he can promise, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What do we gain? What blessings flow to us through the ascension of Jesus to heaven? The first is the comfort of his presence. The second blessing that flows to us through the ascension of Jesus to heaven is going to take us outside of Acts, as I warned you we would do, and to what is my favorite commentary on what happens in our story in Acts that the New Testament offers, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, much of it, talks about what Jesus is doing now that he's ascended. That, that book doesn't make sense apart from the story that Luke tells. That book comes in and helps us see the wonderful, life-changing power of the story that Luke tells this morning. And the second blessing that flows to us through the ascension of Jesus is the blessing that is the power of his sympathy. The power of his sympathy, not just the comfort of his presence, but the power of his sympathy. Let me tell you what I mean. Because Jesus has ascended in a body as real as mine or yours, and now sits on the throne of the universe, we have, right now, on the throne of the universe, one who knows our weakness perfectly, who knows exactly what we need and who has the power to help us. We have now, on the throne of the universe, at the director level, seeing it all and ruling over all, a human person who knows us perfectly 
and has the power to help us. One of the new, I mentioned that, that one of the New Testament books with the most to say about the ascension of Jesus is Hebrews. One of its most beautiful passages on this theme of Jesus' ascension and what he's doing now comes in chapter 4 of that letter. Let me read this to you. And then I just want to chew on it to encourage you. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in, he, in Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's Acts chapter 1. Since this happened, Jesus, the Son of God, that's who we're talking about, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, his throne, the one who knows us, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see what he's doing here? This writer, he starts with the ascension. He starts with Luke's story here. He starts with what we've just seen and read, and then he applies it. Since he passed through the heavens, hold on. Don't give up, because you have an advocate who has been there. He knows you. He's no stranger to your weakness. He's also not limited by your weakness. And that, friends, is a blessed combination that doesn't work unless Jesus, a human, is also lifted up, ascended. Think about it. More times than I'd like to count, I've had a friend in serious need of help, and I've been unable to give them what they've needed. More times than I'd like to count. Sometimes that's because... I just can't do what they need. It's more than I can give. I just don't have it. Maybe more often than that, it's it's because what they need, what they're dealing with, is just beyond what I can understand. I, I can't relate to it. I haven't been there. I can't see it all. I can't internalize and know what helping would even look like. That's a miserable, powerless place to be as a friend. Even more miserable to be on the other end of it to be the friend who's beyond the reach of their support system, suffering at a level no one else can see or understand. Friends, maybe that's where you are this morning. And if you are, I can't offer you the help that you need. But Jesus can. (laughs) Jesus can. Precisely because Jesus is ascended. Jesus lived a full human life. Jesus was tempted in every way. He knows well how strong the pull can be and exactly what it takes to resist it. Jesus suffered loss and grieved as deeply as we ever will. Jesus was hated by people, just hated him, misunderstood, rejected and abandoned even by his friends. In one way or another, the Bible tells us, Jesus has been there. And he can offer far more than just understanding, as precious as that is. What he has done is lived a life like ours and taken the understanding that only he can offer with him to the throne of heaven. 
where now all power and all authority has been given to him. Where he now sits on the throne to hand out an endless supply of grace to help in time of need. What blessings flow to you and to me from the reality of Jesus' ascension. How sweet is this power of his sympathy where understanding is matched perfectly by infinite resources and a willingness to help those who ask for it. There's a third blessing that comes to us because of the, res- the, the ascension of Jesus. I've mentioned the, the, the comfort of his presence, mentioned the, the power of his sympathy, and now I want to reflect for a minute, sticking with Hebrews and its commentary on what Luke tells us. Now I want to reflect for a minute on the confidence of our forgiveness because that's a blessing that we can only receive because Jesus has ascended to heaven. The confidence of our forgiveness. This is another major theme in Hebrews. Oh, there's so many places that we could look to see it. We've already read part of, of what Hebrews has to say on this. Earlier in our service, Bill read from Hebrews chapter 9, where we're reminded that when Jesus ascended to heaven, when Jesus left earth for this other realm in a body that's still there, still real, still just as human as mine or yours, he ascended as a scarred body, broken for sinners, offered as a sacrifice so precious that it can overcome the weight of every sin that will ever be laid on him. What Bill read from, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 24, the, the writer there says that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not like a, not like a physical building like Israel had had before in Jerusalem, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to present, now in the presence of God, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's appeared once for all, we're told, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 10 echoes the same thing. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, when he had presented himself to God, He sat down at the right hand of God. That's the ascension. He took his throne. He sat down because his work was finished. Can you see what this writer is getting at? That's a letter written for our encouragement. It's like a sermon to Christians who needed reasons to hold on in faith. And what he's telling them is that this Jesus who lived and really died and really rose again took his scars with him to the throne of the universe. That comes with a message for you. Do you know what it is to live with shame? I bet you do. It's a complicated problem, isn't it? Where it comes from and and how it operates in us and what we should do about it. It's getting plenty of attention these days. And you'll find out there are many ways to try to deal with this problem. But I want to encourage you, friends, to be very, very careful. There's a good reason that shame can be such a relentless struggle for us. Because some of the responses to shame are going to depend on convincing you that you'll do better next time. You actually have what you need in yourself 
to overcome what you're so ashamed of now. That will maybe even encourage you to think of what you've done that causes you shame, not as who you really are, as an aberration. It's sort of a, it's part of the past, but, but, but if you don't do it anymore, I mean, is it really even a thing? Is it real? Other responses will depend on convincing you that what happened wasn't really as bad as you think it is. We'll try to trim down the offense. Both of those promises, friends, both of them, in their own way, depend on denial. Denial about you, who you are and what you have at your disposal. Or denial about the seriousness of what you've done. And because these approaches depend on denial, they can't stand up to the truth that will always come out in time. And here's the problem. Your heart knows better than to live with this denial. So you will impose shame on yourself. And those who live around you, they know better than to live with this denial. Sometimes they'll impose shame on you when you wake up every day. And either way, If your responses to shame depend on denial, your shame will will remain a burden that will crush you. Denial is no solution, though it comes in many forms. Jesus offers a totally different solution. Totally different. And it all depends on the ascension. Jesus' solution begins with truth. No, you probably won't do better next time. That's why God became man, a nuclear option that you only use when you doing better next time just isn't really a thing. Jesus' solution will say to you, yeah, your sin is every bit as bad as you fear it is and even worse. It's far worse than what you can see or what those close to you can see. Because your sin is ultimately not a failure of your own standards or even a failure of those who are uh, standards of those around you. It may be those things, but it is also always an affront against a holy God who has given you every breath that you've ever taken and on, on whom your next breath depends. Your shame is what it is. Jesus won't deny that. He won't try to prettify that picture. But what he will do, what what Jesus will do, if you'll let him, is carry that shame for you and all the guilt that lies under it. He will take that as his burden so that it's no longer yours to carry. And friends, he does this by paying for it completely, in full, So that there's nothing left against you. That's the gospel message. His life for yours and for mine. And how can you be sure it's enough? If you hear this promise that Jesus' death completely erases your sin against God by paying it down to the last penny. How could you ever be sure that it's really enough? In other words, how can you have the confidence of your forgiveness? The only antidote to the shame you carry, 
The only certain sign that you can be forgiven absolutely is the real, physical, human body bearing scars of a real, physical death marked by wounds that spilled real blood offered once and for all before the one whose opinion of you is the only one that matters. That he sits in this body where he does on his throne in God's presence. I love the way Paul reflects on this. In in Romans chapter 8, he refers to the ascension. And he does it to convince us that we have nothing to fear from judgment. Who is to condemn, he says. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. That's ascension language. Who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If you want to know that you are forgiven, you need to connect with the ascension of Jesus. Because now your forgiveness and your personal experience of it has a concrete focus that is fixed and unshakable. His work is finished, perfectly, completely accepted. And that means the burden of sin is not yours to bear anymore if you'll let him bear it rather than keeping it for yourself. There's one more gift, one more blessing that flows to us through the ascension of Jesus that I want to point you to before we conclude this morning. This blessing that flows to us through the ascension of Jesus is the hope of his return. The hope of his return. And here I want to take us back to Acts, back to the passage we actually have read this morning, back to the passage that's building for us an expectation of what comes next. We began that, uh, this message with the tension that Jesus leaving built for his followers, for, for his followers for whom he was everything, who saw his leaving and surely at first thought that it meant losing him again. We mentioned then the, the gentle rebuke of the angels. Why, why are you looking back? Why are you looking at heaven? Why are you just gazing at where he was? And the reason they ask that question is that they want them looking ahead, not back, looking to the future, not the past. And that's where their next words carry the disciples. This Jesus, verse 11 of chapter 1, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. By the end of the passage we've read this morning, they've done exactly as they've been told. They've gone back to Jerusalem. They're waiting there. They're praying all in one accord. Luke's gospel, which also tells this story, has a slightly different angle that it gives to what they're doing. As they go back to Jerusalem, we're told that they go praising God. They go rejoicing. They've gone from sorrow to joy. They've gone from fear to confidence. And just a few days later, we're soon going to see as we keep moving through Acts, these same followers will witness to Jesus from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth as if they got shot out of a cannon. These men go and stare down death. They'll even be killed. And they face it all like it's nothing. What's happened to them? How did they get there? All because their Jesus ascended to heaven and now they understand why. 
See, the angel's redirection had a point to it, as I've said. Remember what they say to redirect the focus of the disciples. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back just like this. So the fact that his physical body ascended to heaven, where it now reigns over all, that fact is why we have hope that one day we'll see him return in his body in the same way that he left. That's the simple point. I want to chew on this for a little bit. I want to make sure you can see why the prospect of his return turns the ascension from loss to gain. Friends, what you're going to need to make it through whatever it is that's coming for you in your life is a confidence and a joy that is tethered, that is anchored and resilient. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to enjoy the goodness and the beauty of this world while also telling the truth and acknowledging with honesty the brokenness and the pain and and the death that comes with our experience in this world too. I mean, even this week, I have worked with several friends dealing with heartbreaking, gut-wrenching loss with unthinkable betrayal and with unanswerable questions about why and how and how long. This, this isn't a hypothetical that I'm setting up for you. For whatever it is that will come for you, you need something, a source of confidence and joy that's tethered, that's anchored, or you won't be ready and to stand up under, under what comes. Look at the apostles again. Their confidence and joy facing death, as they soon will, facing prison, facing all sorts of loss and hardship. Their confidence and joy in the face of it can be your confidence and your joy for whatever you face from here to the grave. So you need to know that their confidence and their joy comes from the fact that they had glimpsed their future. They knew where their king had gone. They had grasped the significance of his ascension. See, not all endings are the same. Right now, out back of my house, next to our patio, there is a Christmas tree that is dead. It's turning from green to brown. It was, it was a pretty nice tree when we had it. Not our best, but, but pretty nice. We were among those who go stand in a warehouse shoulder to shoulder with thousands of other people to pick this little bit of Americana keep this thing going of real trees that come to Home Depot from there to my house and somehow that's supposed to be evoking Norman Rockwell, I suppose. But anyway, we do it. We do it. It, it, It's a bizarre thing to do, but we do it. And now it's dead. Now it's sitting out there waiting for its turn in my fire pit. It was nice to look at. We enjoyed it. Now it's over. Thanks for the memories. But it's done. But, there, but you know what? There are a couple of boxes. There are a couple of boxes in our shed full of ornaments that once hung on that tree, lights that once wrapped it, stockings that were once hung with care. And, and, and those are also now gone from my house. My house has no tree, it has no decorations. But those decorations. Well, they aren't gone in the way that tree is. 
They are carefully wrapped, safely packaged, stored in the place where we know they belong because one day it'll be Christmas again. You see the difference in those two endings? One way for something to end is for it to just give up its ghost. It came, it was nice, it's dead, now it's gone. Many religions follow leaders like that. They came, nice to have, charismatic, wise, powerful in their influence, gone now. That's one way for something good to end. But as Christians, we believe that our leader, though he died, is yet risen. And though we do not see him now, he lives still. And he is not visible to us now only because he's waiting on his return. And this, friends, is where the Christmas decorations example, whatever usefulness it may have had, comes crashing down in a heap of mess. This is where the analogy falls apart. Because our Jesus, he has not been stored away, gathering dust until the time someone decides it's right to pull it out, dust it back off, and put him back to work. Our Jesus is working even now. Just a couple chapters from, or just one chapter over from what we've just read, Peter will preach his first sermon. And when he does, one of his core texts that he will explain to those who listen is the most often cited text from the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. Peter will preach on this psalm, which says, The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, said to my Lord, not David, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter chose this text because he now knows what it's really all about. He's seen Jesus swallowed in a cloud of glory. He knows he sits now at his Father's right hand. He knows that the enemies are falling, all of them. The grip of sin on the hearts of his own. The evil one whose fiery darts tempt us only to accuse us when we fall. And beyond it all, death itself, what Paul calls our final enemy, whose fate is sealed by the resurrection of Jesus, but whose power still steals what we love and breaks our hearts. Christ has made our enemies his enemies, and he will reign until they are his footstool. And when they are, he will come back. He will return in the same way that he went. His ascension makes us a future-oriented but hopeful and confident people. When he does return, he will make all things new. I love the last verse that Bill read for us from Hebrews chapter 9 earlier. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, that's done. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The ascension of Jesus grounds our hope for his return. 
Now we pray, as we're told to do, that he will come quickly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us so much more than we deserve. We pray that through your word this morning, you would help us to understand and experience the gifts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension in a deeper way than we have before. We pray that this hope would give purpose and resilience to our days, no matter what they include. And we pray that you would make us active together in reminding one another of who we have in Jesus. We pray that what we've considered this morning would be useful to us in our ministry to each other this week. That you would hold all of us fast to our confession until we meet again. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns forever. Amen.